morning, everybody. Y'all doing well today? It's a glorious morning out there, isn't it? Been waiting for this for like four months. It's wonderful out there. You know, it's a good day for a wedding. Y'all want, want to go to a wedding today? That, cause that, that, that is what we're, we're going to do. We're going to experience a wedding, one of the truly great celebrations of love and, and devotion and commitment. And, you know, there's a couple of high moments in the wedding. There's the pronouncement and the kiss. But I think really the big moment is the moment those doors throw open and that bride steps through. Isn't that kind of a just a huge moment? I mean, it's a very emotional moment, a very powerful moment. Uh, it can be really overwhelming. I, I mean, I've as a pastor, I've had a chance to stand here over 150 times. I'm guessing I've been to more weddings than anybody in the room. Uh, over 150 times, I've watched those doors open and that that bride step through. Of course, there was one time I stood here, not as a pastor, but as a groom. And it was overwhelming for me. I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit, I, I not only cried when, when Karen stepped through, stepped through those doors, but I ugly cried. I mean, I needed prayer. No, I mean, I needed like the pastor to have people bow their head and close their eyes. I could clean up all the snot and tears all over my face. I, I was a mess. I, need, I needed everybody to stop looking for a moment. Well, we are going to a wedding today. You know, a wedding's a big transition in life. It's a, it's, an, it's a transition in an individual life, and as we come to Revelation 19, it is a huge transition from where we've been to, to where we are going. We have walked through in chapter 6 through 18 a, a reign of darkness and evil. We have walked through all the judgments of God to come out of that into this glorious moment of a wedding. We're moving from seven years of tribulation to a thousand years of the reign of Christ. We're, we're moving from a very temporary rule of the Antichrist to the absolutely permanent rule of the Christ. Amen? So let's see what this wedding looks like. Turn with me to Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19 and we're going to be looking today at verses 1 through 10. We're going to stop right before the second coming happens. You'll have to come back next week for that. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute. Remember from last week, the prostitute here is not, that's not a person. This is the city Babylon, the region Babylon. It is certainly the value, the thinking of Babylon, the, the thinking that we can live without God. God has judged, we saw that last week in 17 and 18. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those. Are you one of those? Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. That tells you about what, what an overwhelming moment this was, what an overwhelming presence this angel is. I mean, he felt like this is something you worship at. But he said to me, no, 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 no. You, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, you might have noticed you heard the word hallelujah a few times in that passage, four times to be exact. You know, when you say, when you speak the word hallelujah, you're you're actually speaking Hebrew. It may be the only time in your life that you're speaking Hebrew, but you are speaking Hebrew. Hallelujah is not a translated word. It is a transliterated word. Word. What that means is it's a, a, a word in a foreign language that has been made to sound with English letters like we would say it. So hallelujah is not the translation of another word. It is the transliteration of that word hallelujah. And the word hallelujah in Hebrew comes from two words, hallel, which means to praise, and Yah from Yahweh. So hallelujah, if it was transli- translated, would be praise the Lord. And there is four times that the word hallelujah appears in the New Testament, which means what? You just saw all four times. <laughs> all four times this is used in the New Testament, it is used right here. There are four hallelujahs that go to the throne. Four hallelujahs that go up to our God, our King, and our Savior. There's a hallelujah for the salvation of God. Now, there's a lot of reasons to praise God for saving us, amen? But can you imagine these right here, and we'll be a part of the these. Can you imagine these right here praising God for salvation? They've just watched the judgment of God fall. And I'm guessing we're feeling pretty good right now. Oh my, wow, I am so glad to have been what? Saved. I'm so glad to have been rescued out of The wrath of God that has just fallen on sin and evil in the world. They're praising God to have been rescued from that moment. You know who they're not praising? They're not praising themselves. That's why it's just such a travesty to think that it's my goodness, it's my work, it's my religiosity. There's there's something about me and what I'm going to do that makes me worthy before God. No, there's not. We praise God that he in his goodness rescued us out of that moment. There's a hallelujah that goes up. Now, this is going to sound strange for the severity of God. But when you look here, he's being praised for his power and his ability to rightly, to justly, and to completely deal with evil, with sin, with Satan, with the Antichrist. And when his judgment falls, it leaves nothing untouched. It leaves nothing undone. 
Last week we saw God's judgment fall on Babylon. And the, the, the man's way of living without him. We saw two primary ways, religion and money. And when that, when that bomb of God's wrath dropped, it, it was so powerful that it says the smoke, what does it say right here? The smoke will rise forever and ever. God's judgment is absolutely complete. Nothing escapes. And then there's a hallelujah that goes up for the sovereignty of God. He is the sovereign God and King. There's just one on the throne. There's just one. It's not Satan. It's not the Antichrist. It's not evil. It's not a person. It's not a plan. God, Yahweh, His Son, Jesus Christ, that is who is on the throne. One plan. One plan is sovereign. Think about that. How many plans are there? And just think in your own life. I got, I got a plan for this afternoon. I got a plan for tomorrow. I got a plan for the week ahead. I got a plan for my life. I got a plan for my family. I, I mean, how many plans does one person have? Now multiply that by eight billion. I mean, I mean, think how many plans are running at this very moment. And to think that one day there'll be just one plan that's running. There'll just be one plan, sovereign over all, God's plan. And, and, and lastly, one more hallelujah goes up for the supremacy of Christ. That moment when everyone sees there is one central supreme being, there's one central supreme love, and it's Jesus Christ. And it is his kingdom that now comes. You know, I've said this a couple of times during this series because Revelation gives us that opportunity. But how many times have we prayed? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Folks, here's the answer right here. Here's the answer to that prayer. His kingdom is coming and it is supreme. There's no place his kingdom doesn't touch. There's no place his kingdom doesn't rule. There's not a, there's not a milli-inch somewhere, a millimeter somewhere that is a greater power, a greater knowledge, a greater rule, a greater existence outside of Christ. He is supreme. So the hallelujahs go up. And as we're, as we're recognizing all this about the groom, it's as he is coming to his wedding. And he's wedding, he's marrying you and me. We're, we're the bride of Christ. Now, to understand this wedding, we, we need to understand a Jewish wedding. Because a Jewish wedding is very different from what you and I do, what we watch and, and witness. So we got to understand what a Jewish wedding is doing to understand what is happening here. So a Jewish wedding has three parts to it. The first part is the legal marriage. That's when the mom and dad of the bride and groom get together. They cut the deal. I mean, it is a deal. It's contract. And and they're coming together and they're cutting this and a dowry is paid. And at that moment, they are legally married. We would call that being engaged, right? And engagements seems like most time in my experience, engagements usually get to their desired goal of the wedding day. Every now and then it doesn't work out, right? And there's tears and a ring is flying through the air and some, obviously that's a, that's a bad moment. But as bad a moment as is, you just can't get up and walk away. Not, not in the Jewish uh, wedding you couldn't. You were legally married at this point. You weren't sleeping together. 
You were not living together, but you were legally married. If you'll remember from the Christmas story, Joseph and, and Mary have walked through this first step. They, we would say they're engaged. In the Jewish community, they would say, no, they're, they're legally married, not sleeping together, not living together. But Mary shows up pregnant. And obviously, uh, Joseph's first thought was not, did the Holy Spirit do that? Is this a virgin birth? No, that, that he, he thought what any of us would think in that moment. And so what does it say there? That he broke up? No, he was going to divorce her. They were legally married. There would have to be a divorce at this point. So this is the first step, is that what we call engagement, they would call a legal marriage. And from this moment, the groom would get up with his parents and go back to the to his parents' house, back to his father's house, and he would begin to build on. He would begin to build a house for his bride. And when that house was done, he was close but not yet ready. The father determines when the son goes and gets his bride. That, that is a Jewish wedding. The father determines when the son goes to get the bride. And when the father says, okay, go get her, then we move to step two. And, and so, so the groom would get all of his friends together, and there'd be kind of a bit of a parade through town, and, and they would blow the trumpet. And in my mind, I, I just like to imagine that the town is small enough that the trumpet can be heard everywhere, but big enough that maybe there's more than one, uh, you know, fiancé out there. I mean, can you imagine if there's two, three, four, five young ladies engaged to be married, they hear that trumpet, oh, is this my day? Looking out the door, is this, my, is this my groom coming for me? Imagine the, the anticipation and the excitement of this. So he would, he would come through the town, the trumpet is blowing, he would collect his bride, and he would carry her back now to the father's house. Now, with that understanding of what a Jewish wedding looks like, I want to read some verses that I think probably to quite a few of us are familiar, but maybe now you're going to hear them in a brand new light. This is from John chapter 14. It's the, the night before Jesus is, is crucified. They're in the upper room and Jesus is teaching them. And in John 14 verse 2, he says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where you, that, that where I am, you may be also. You know, no Jew would have heard that and not thought of a wedding. Now, you and I read that, and it would have never known that was anything to do with a wedding. That is 100% entirely wedding language. No Jew would read that. No, no Jew would hear that and not think, is he talking about a wedding? And the wedding he's talking about right here is Revelation chapter 19. It's the re- wedding that we're, we're at, the wedding that we're reading about right now. And so now we move to the third phase of the wedding. We come back to the father's house and, and we, do the, uh, we do the ceremony and we have a feast. And the Jews know how to feast. They know how to do a wedding reception. Now, I, I say they know how to do that as I, I have twice been the father of a bride. I have twice paid for a wedding reception that was like two and a half, three hours long. And I remember the check I wrote for that. And I can't imagine being Jewish because their wedding reception lasted seven days. 
At minimum, it could go on longer than that, but it was going to last seven days. That is the Jewish wedding. And you see how much of our relationship, how much Jesus coming back for us is all around this language. Because in this, folks, God is communicating, Jesus is communicating the kind of love that he has for you, the prize, the treasure of that bride. Now, one more little caveat. He's not a fourth step or a fifth step, just another little difference in a Jewish wedding versus our wedding. You know, as I referred to a moment ago, a, a, a big moment in a wedding is when those doors throw open and the bride comes through. I mean, a wedding day really is about that bride. I mean, you grooms out there, future grooms out there, I'm just, you're a decoration. I'm just, just telling you, it's a very important decoration, but you are just a decoration. And I've seen it over and over and over. Okay. You're just a decoration in this moment. It's about her in all her glory. Well, that's not the case in a Jewish wedding. Now I'm not diminishing the bride or, or the, the importance of her, but think about the three steps I just walked through in every one of those steps. It's not about the beauty of the bride. It's not about the glory of the bride. It is about the movement of the groom. It's the father and the groom that are coming to the bride. It is the groom preparing. It is the father saying now. It's the, the groom coming in that great parade through town to collect his bride. It's central to this. See, in our eyes, we think that's kind of strange that God would use a, a wedding as an illustration because the focus is all, on the, is all on the bride. No, the focus is on the groom. And that is what we should be focused on, isn't it? We, we, we should be focused on that groom. So where are we right now in this process? We, we just described three phases. Where, where are we today? September 6, 2020. Where, where are we in this process? Well, we're, we're in phase one. Many of us are. Some yet have not arrived at phase one. We've already had a legal marriage. That moment that you and I turn from sin and self... We place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There is a very legal moment happening there. Boy, especially when Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 8 are describing salvation, they really use legal language, the legal language of being justified, the legal language of being adopted. There is a legal marriage that has taken place. You are now a legal part of the church. And, and the Bible uses a couple of terms for the church, does it? It uses the word church, which means, believe it or not, kind of interesting for today, it means the gathering. That's what we are. We're, we're the gathering. We're, we're the body. That's a second term for us, is we're the body of Christ. And the third term, we're the bride. We are the bride of Christ. We are the treasure of Jesus we are, you are legally, when you come to faith in Christ, you are legally now that bride and he is coming for us as soon as the father says, go get her, go get her, bring, bring her home. And that moment is the rapture. Now we talked about the rapture 
two, two, maybe even three months ago now, but I remember we were outside. We talked about the rapture, and if you'll remember that day, my focus in the lesson was not much on the what, it was a whole lot on the when. Remember that? You know, is, is the rapture before the tribulation? Do we get taken up before the seven years starts? Or, or we looked at in the middle of the tribulation, and, and then there's some that believe after that the church believers are going to go all the way through that seven years and then be raptured up after that. Well, today our focus is not on when, it's on what. Because whenever you believe it is, and I, I, I hold to the view that we are raptured up before the tribulation, but whenever it is, it is the same thing. It is the groom coming to collect his bride. And take her back to the Father's house. Can you imagine that moment? We're going through town. Big parade. All of Jesus' friends. There I am. There you are. We're the bride and we're approaching the Father's house. I'm guessing. I'm anticipating. Pretty overwhelmed by it. And, and we get there. That's a wedding. I, I, got, I, got, I got to get dressed. Look down there at verse 8. Clothing is going to be provided. Linens are going to be provided. But before that happens... There needs to be a judgment. There's got to be a judgment. Now, we're not, this is not the place of judging heaven and hell. This is all believers here, right? This is the bride of Christ. We're not judging heaven and hell. We'll be getting to that long about chapter 21 when we get to the great white throne. But, but no, this is not a judgment of whether you're going to heaven or hell. Everybody here is going to, to heaven in this scene. This is a judgment for our rewards. Rewards in the New Testament are sometimes described as clothing, linens. Obviously, this is one of those places. Sometimes those rewards are talked about as being crowns, also actually a part of kind of a clothing. And, and another kind of reward that we'll get when we're in heaven is opportunity, responsibility, kind of the role we will be playing in heaven. Folks, our works are judged. What we did in Christ is judged. Not for heaven and hell, but really how we're going to live in that heaven. I want to show you that judgment. As a matter of fact, if, if you've got your own Bible, if you've got somebody else's Bible, go ahead and write in that one too. But if, if you've got your own Bible, maybe next to Revelation 19, 8 and 9, you might write 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 to 15. And if you want, go ahead and turn there now. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me begin in verse 11. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11. It says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, if you're going to build something, it starts with a foundation. If you don't start with a foundation, it doesn't really matter what you're building because it's falling over. Okay, if you're going to build something that's going to last, if you're going to build something that can stand, you've got to have a foundation. And the only foundation for a person that's building a life is Jesus Christ. You know what that means? Life begins when you lay the foundation of Christ. I became a believer, a follower of Christ at the age of 17. Technically, that means my first 16 years didn't build anything. Nothing of eternal value, nothing of eternal standing happens in the first 16 years. The building began for me at 17. That's when something was happening that would now count for eternity. You come to Christ at 41, guess what? The first 40 years you weren't building anything. You might have had fun. You might have been building some stuff on earth, but based on the 
based on the 16 chapters I just read, that's all going to burn. You know, no, we're talking about stuff that's going to last forever. It begins when you lay a foundation of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Verse 12. Okay, so we don't have a life until we lay the foundation. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. Each one's work will become known for the day will disclose it. The day. Old and New Testament, when you see the term, the day, I mean, you say, well, gosh, there's a lot of days, aren't there? Yeah, there are a lot of days, but there is a the day, and the day is the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is the rapture, the seven years of the tribulation, it is the second coming. Even if you, were, no matter where you put the rapture, The seven years of the tribulation, the rapture, the second coming, all of those events go under the umbrella, the day of the Lord. So now think about this. What have we been looking at the last two or three months? We've been looking at what goes on on earth during those seven years. What we're seeing in this passage is what's going on in heaven during those seven years. We, uh, we are the bride. We've been taken to heaven. And now the day, the, the day of the Lord is going to test the quality of our work. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. Every single one of us individually will go into, not the fires of hell, It's a mistake to think that every time you see the word fire, somebody's lost. Somebody's being judged to hell. No, there is a refining fire. Believers, you, me, individually, we will go into the refining fire and it will test the quality of our work. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So my life goes into the refining fire. I... I don't know if God waits for like a buzzer to go off or what, but then my life will come back out. What's left, what didn't get burned up, becomes then the basis of my reward. Now, there might be somebody in here thinking, what if, what if nothing comes out? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 15. By the way, to me, this is probably one verse as much as any that I anchor eternal security to. That once you are saved, you cannot lose that salvation. You say, well, but they, they, they didn't live well. They, they came to Christ but made a mess of it every day after that. Okay, look at verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, and this is a believer, this is a person in heaven. Their life goes into the refining fire, it comes out, and nothing A couple of burnt crumbs. What is this? It's all burned up. He will suffer loss. That's always been a little bit of a disconcerting phrase to me. I I mean, when you think of heaven, you just don't think of the word loss, do you? This is a believer. This is somebody in heaven. And there is a moment here that this person, when their life comes out of the refining fire, they're going to suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved. They came to Christ and did nothing with it. Yet he's still saved, but only as through the fire. 
So, folks, you and I get to heaven. We're with our groom. It's time to get dressed. We've got a wedding to go to. It starts at 3. And, and, and so now I've, I've got to go through the judgment. I've got to go through the refining fire. What happens in there? Well, in a refining fire, impurities get burned off. Well, what gets burned off is, I mean, kind of the obvious things, right? My sin, my rebellion, my disobedience, even as a believer, This isn't my sin, rebellion, and disobedience before being a believer. That's all paid for at the cross. My sin, disobedience, and rebellion after the cross is paid for at the cross. But it's still there in my life, and it has to be burned out. You know what else gets burned out? All the good and wonderful things I did for myself. And I can't imagine that this happens anymore on planet Earth than inside a church building. Because you and I have done more things that we can count that had nothing to do with the glory of God, that had nothing to do with love of God. It had everything to do with the glory of me. It's me wanting you to see me as a certain kind of person. It's me, you, me wanting you to see me as being good. Sometimes it's me wanting to be able to see myself as good because I'm not trusting in the cross. I'm trusting in my efforts. I'm trusting in my goodness. And folks, you and I do a mountain of things that has nothing to do with love of God and the glory of God and all that good burns. That's what it says, it tests the quality. It's not just testing whether a work was done, it's testing the quality of that work. You know what else burns away? Good things that weren't done in faith. Because you and I have a terrible tendency to only do what I'm confident I can do. I give what I can afford, I, I, I volunteer for what I'm confident I will be good at, In other words, when I go to do this good thing, I am trusting in myself. You know what the New Testament says, Hebrews 11, 6? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. There can't be a reward when God's not pleased. Without faith. You see, and folks, let's just be honest. Sometimes I just, I don't trust God to do that giving through me. I don't trust God to do that forgiving through me. I don't trust God to let the gospel come through my lips. I don't trust God to do that. So what do I do? What do I volunteer for? What I can do. What I'm I'm confident in who? What I'm confident in me. Folks, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. He's not looking for how smart you are, how strong you are, how good you are, and, and how much you can do that for Christ on your own. He's looking for the relationship where you are wholly dependent upon him. So all that burns away. Now, right now, if you're like me, you're thinking, what is going to be left? Oh, what I did in obedience. What I did for the love and the glory of God. And remember what we said last week about religion. Only grace, only grace gives me the ability to genuinely do something for God's glory and God's love. You see, if I have to work myself into heaven... I mean, I might be here every Sunday, but yeah, and I'm going to say, I'm going to sing songs. You know, I love God and that's what it's going to all be about. But honestly, the reason I'm here today, I'm, I'm trying to keep myself out of hell. I'm, I'm here today for me. But when that's all been taken care of, now I can genuinely enter this room, enter this body, become a part of this bride with no other thought, no other motive that God be glorified. 
And, and that I love God in what I'm saying, what I'm saying, what I'm doing, how I'm treating, how I'm, how I'm acting. And, and all of that. So when we, when we obey and God is our motive and we step out in faith, man, that's going to be the basis of the reward. And we're not all getting the same reward, are we? Oh, God's fair. God's fair. Now, if you want to talk about unfairness, it's unfair that you're in heaven. It's unfair that in the sin and evil you and I have lived, that Christ died for, it's unfair that we win in that. But, but as we get to heaven, there will be a reward for what we built in Christ. And as I said, that reward is described as linens, it's described as crowns, it's described as responsibility and, and what we'll experience in heaven. But the good news is we're in heaven, Right? So, so folks, that, that is the wedding. Now we're ready to, we're dressed and we're ready to go to the wedding. So here, here's the order of events. There is a, there is a rapture. Okay, the groom has just come and gotten you and me. He's taken us back to the father's house and, and we're going to go through a, a ceremony. Of course, we have to go through the judgment first to get our clothing. Then we'll go to a ceremony. Then we go to the, the marriage supper of the lamb. We go to the wedding reception. And what's it say here? Blessed are those who are invited. You're invited. The issue isn't the invitation. The issue is whether we receive it or not. There's a couple of places I could point to. A favorite one of mine, a favorite invitation of mine is when Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary. Do you know you will not go to Christ until you are weary? Until you're worn out, weary of trying to be good enough, weary of trying to cover the rules. Weary of telling yourself how good you are. Weary of dealing with your own sin, dealing with your own failure, dealing with your own uh, own, own, uh, guilt. You will not. Nobody will. Nobody will go to Christ. Folks, it's not an academic exercise where we weigh the existence of Jesus and if that could be real and could he really have risen from the dead... That's not why we do or do not go to Christ. We don't go to Christ until we're weary. Boy, that makes it... That's why Jesus said, boy, harder, hard to go, hard for the rich person to go to heaven because rich, rich people have a tendency to not get weary as quick as some of the others because as long as I got money, I can fake it. I can fake that I'm feeling pretty good and that I'm pretty happy and, and that I'm, I'm pretty strong until you are weary. You will not come to Christ. But blessed is the one who finally reaches that place of weariness and says yes to Jesus. So, what do we do with all this today? I mean, is, it, is, is this just here as interesting information, a little bit of knowledge on the future? Well, yeah, of course, that's exactly why it's there. I mean, I mean, somebody could still be asking right now, well, man, I don't know. I don't know how I've, if I've lived. I don't know what kind of clothing I'm going to have there. I, wear, I could be getting my clothing from the goodwill or something of heaven. What's this going to look like? Hey, you know what? Instead of wondering what if, instead of wondering well, what if it doesn't turn out so well for me when I get, instead of wondering that, just start today. 
Just start to, hey, you, you now know what's happening. You now know what's going to go on when you get there. So start today obeying God. Start today letting it be for one reason, his glory. For one reason, because you love him. Start today not only doing good, but doing good in a way that you have to pray. Doing good in a way that you have to trust that God's going to show up and enable this to happen. Boy, folks, think of of the, the balance here that we've just seen. What did we see last week in chapter 17 and 18? We saw immorality, adultery, unfaithfulness. Remember, we said that had... While all those words are sexually oriented, it actually didn't have anything to do with sex right there. We had cheated on God. We had cheated on his revelation of who he is and what he's done for us. And we went running after the the things of the world. And so chapter 17 and 18 is about unfaithfulness. And chapter 19 is about the most beautiful celebration of faithfulness and love that there is. And do you remember what Jesus said to us last week in 18 verse 4? It's even more powerful when you read it in light of this wedding. Jesus said, come out of her. Do you realize Jesus is saying to you today, don't cheat on me. I've been faithful to you. And I'm calling you to be faithful to me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you did for me at the cross that pays for all the places of my unfaithfulness and my immorality and the the ugliness of how I cheat against my creator and savior. Lord, I'm so grateful I don't have to pay for that. But Lord, let me see what has been done to cover that. And may that now motivate me, may that now motivate all of us in a new and a fresh way to live faithfully unto you. And Lord, in our world, to live faithfully for you, it's going to take you. It's going to take your power, your boldness, your courage in us. Oh Lord, there's no way to live faithfully for you without depending completely on you for it. Oh Lord, I pray that... You would help each one of us this week as we walk through a week, just a normal week, normal relationships, work, school, things going on. God, I pray we could see, open our eyes, open our heart to the places we're being unfaithful to you. And may we repent of that unfaithfulness and turn afresh to love. Oh, Lord, you... So often you point us to the cross to see a demonstration of love. I thank you today for pointing us to a wedding to see how deeply loved we really are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.